1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. In Sarmada, in northwest Syria, where a devastating earthquake struck on Monday, Ishmael Abdullah and his family were among the survivors.
2: We survived by miracle because uh, at the time, the the ground was sh- started to shake we uh, left the house and avoided any rubble to fall on our heads unfortunately our neighbor their buildings collapsed and killed killed all the family
1: as a volunteer with Syrian rescue group the white helmets ismail is now trying to save others <laughs> Videos on social media showing survivors being pulled alive from the rubble have provided a glimmer of hope in the midst of this deadly disaster.
2: We rescued uh, many, many civilians and children, women, from under the rubble. But as the time passes, we lose hope and we lose civilians.
1: The government of President Bashir al-Assad is not in control of this part of Syria. People there have had to deal with this disaster on their own. On Thursday morning, three full days after the earthquake struck, pleas for international assistance had largely gone unanswered.
2: We didn't receive anything, just uh, 20 uh, Egyptian team uh, volunteers. We didn't know why they do not. They didn't respond to us. They, uh, they helped, uh, helped Turkey, many flights many rescue teams. We need equipment that enable us to locate people who are under durable and still breathing. This, this, we said this from the very beginning, from the first moment. We need generators, we need diesel uh, to complete our work. And that's what asked the whole international community to do before, but no one responded.
1: International aid has poured into neighbouring Turkey and into the majority of Syria that is controlled by the Assad regime. It took much longer, though, to come to Sarmada. For some trapped under the rubble, it could be too little, too late.
2: We don't want to be rescuers or rescue teams who retrieve dead bodies. We need to be people who rescue people alive.
1: I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, when Northwest Syria asked for help, why didn't the world answer? Natasha Hall is Senior Fellow in the Middle East Programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Natasha, at the start of this podcast, we heard from Ishmael Abdullah of the White Helmets. On Thursday morning, he and his colleagues were still focused on rescuing people from under the rubble. But the hard reality is the window to save people is fast closing. It seems quite likely that more people could have been saved if the equipment needed had been made available, but it wasn't. Why has this aid to the people in this part of Syria been so long coming?
0: Well, there are a lot of uh, logistical issues at play here. The Northwest Enclave is very heavily dependent. On authorities uh, around them for supplies from abroad, for aid. Uh, They're very heavily dependent on one border crossing that's been approved by the UN Security Council to deliver UN funded aid in particular. Uh, There had been uh, reports that the roads were badly damaged, but as I've noted for the past three days, There are quite a few, uh, quite a few roads that are clear and not so badly damaged. And so now we're finally seeing six trucks coming in through that border crossing I mentioned. Uh, But this is old aid. This is, you know, food. This was stuff that was in warehouses that they're bringing to people. This isn't sort of search and rescue equipment and things like that. And uh, t- turns out the roads weren't so badly damaged, or at least a lot of them weren't. So, I mean, I think this points out a few different things. One of them, you know, the Turkish government is suffering from this crisis as well. And so a lot of the the hubs that were used to deliver aid, like Hatay and Gaziantep, they're also at a standstill. Um, but also, uh, you know, it's it would look bad for President Erdogan, I think, to be parting with a lot of Earthquake supplies and, and, and search and rescue equipment when his, all, his own
1: population is reeling at the moment. So who lives in this part of northwest Syria? What conditions are they been living in even before the earthquakes? Right.
0: So this northwest enclave of Syria has about a little over five million people in it. About two thirds of them or more are displaced. About 80 percent of them, you know, up to 25 times. Uh, so this population is very accustomed to collapsed buildings, but for a very different reason. And that's the Russian uh, regime and uh, Syrian regime airstrikes throughout this awful, awful uh, 12 years of war. And, um, and so this is, you know, this is a population that's very deeply vulnerable, deeply traumatized, um, and has had a lot of their assets wiped out multiple times.
1: The Syrian government has urged the international community to give what's called cross-line support, um, whereby it will funnel aid for the destroyed region through Damascus, instead of opening more border crossings between Syria and Turkey. Why is that?
0: Well, I mean, I think that the the Assad regime has been um, very negative about these border crossings from the very beginning, primarily because they reach non-government controlled areas. So these are typically the areas that have either been rebelling against him throughout the war um, or, you know, he's actually called a lot of the the humanitarian NGOs in these areas terrorists, for example, um, as part of kind of a political ploy in, in a way. Um, the other reason is is simply you know resources and narrative. I think you know. I mean, I think having control of those resources as they're funneled to this to this rebel enclave is is really useful. And so we've seen we've seen the uh, we've seen the the Assad regime stop convoys. We've seen it um, sort of damage or loot convoys in the past. Um, this is a, this is a good way to weaken a population and not really do so militarily. Um, and so you see that as uh, the UN amb- the Syrian ambassadors to the UN has said they would be happy to coordinate all aid, as you mentioned to non-government controlled areas, um, but they would not approve access through other border crossings uh, from Turkey.
1: Now that same Syrian government representative in the UN on Monday he he called for western sanctions on Syria to be removed so he said you know they were obstructing aid what sanctions are in place and I, I know this is a big question but why are they in place
0: so so the sanctions that are in place uh primarily by the EU and the United States are both individual sanctions, so sanctions on people who are implicated in war crimes themselves or connected to those who are um, funding or aiding or abetting war criminals as well. Uh, and then there are also sectoral sanctions to put pressure on the Syrian regime. And I think um, a lot of the, the clamoring about sanctions has been um, primarily about these sectoral sanctions, um, I would say, though, that there are humanitarian waivers and exceptions and these same sanctioning countries that I mentioned um, in Europe and in the United States, the UK, uh, they have also provided about actually much over $40 billion in assistance um, to Syria and the surrounding countries uh, in the past 10 years. So um, so there's a lot of disinformation flying around about this, about whether or not, you know, the Syrian regime is being treated differently. Well, they're being treated differently in terms of sanctions because they've been committing war crimes for the past dozen or so years. Um, so so that's, that's the reason that they're being treated differently. Um, now, a lot of humanitarian organizations are saying to, to sort of uh, maybe rethink sanctions um, uh, or have for a long time. Um, but at this point in time, um, due to this acute emergency, I think it's, it's mostly the Syrian regime sort of trying to use this uh, moment in time to really push that movement forward.
1: And because it is a, an acute emergency, which we all can see, um, is there a case, is there an appetite in, in the West for lifting those sanctions, do you think? Could it possibly happen even for a window?
0: Yeah. um, Well, I mean, perhaps. I think that this uh, emergency crisis, though, also showed how quickly aid can be funneled into a country that has a recognized government. Um, So I've been getting a lot of questions about the sanctions, but we've also seen dozens of search and rescue teams from all over the world pour into um, government of Syria-controlled areas. We've seen tons of aid pouring in, um, and we haven't seen anything. For northwest Syria, um, so I think for for a lot of people that have been following the war um, uh, and a lot of the massacres that have occurred, um, it's deeply frustrating at this moment of acute emergency um, to to be talking about this when no aid, no equipment, no search and rescue volunteers have been sent to the northwest.
1: So, you know, the death toll uh, has been rising every hour. Buildings and infrastructure are destroyed. So what is Northwest Syria going to look like next week or next month in your view? Is it going to be just the same as last month, except infinitely worse?
0: Oh, I think that this is just another inflection point. Um, I, uh, I, I don't think it'll just be worse, uh, unfortunately. I think that, um, you know, at one point, Turkey was a refuge for a lot of people fleeing this war. Um, I think now every every area of control, whether it's the government of Syria or whether it's Turkey, they will be competing for resources, for fuel, for these supplies. You know, we saw a little bit of this during the COVID pandemic, um, but this will be just magnified by a hundred. And... Um, I've, I've written about this, but I'm, I am definitely seeing the divides um, politically, but also even on the humanitarian side, as everyone is trying to get, you know, search and rescue volunteers, rubble removal in. And, you know, un- unfortunately, the funding cuts were very severe for Northwest Syria even before uh, the earthquake, so they didn't really have hospitals or medical personnel, and um, eh- And I I just, uh, you know, with dwindling resources all around for these emerging crises, including Ukraine, I mean, we we really need to see a reversal in international attention on Syria. Because, you know, I think if Syria has taught us anything, it's that it can always get worse. Um, And that will ripple out into the rest of our lives eventually. Um, So I think that um, hopefully this crisis shows us that. And, and, and it is an inflection point, um, but for, for more attention and for more interest.
1: So this week, without international aid getting through to northwest Syria, it seems as if the people mainly on the ground there are the White Helmets helping, trying to save people, trying to, to, to give aid. Who are the White Helmets?
0: So, um, many years ago, uh, during this conflict, I, I worked in um, the civilian protection field. I wasn't working for a think tank. Uh, and I interviewed hundreds of Syrians. And, you know, I asked them, who do you turn to for help? Who can you trust? Who do you have hope in? And time and time again, it was the White Helmets, the Fad Medani, the civil defense um, and this was a group, uh, a ragtag group of people that emerged out of necessity all throughout Syria um, with the airstrikes and the shelling. There was really no one to, to take people out of the rubble. And so it was quite difficult to get people to, say, shelter in place or go to a basement when they thought, you know, maybe the building would fall on them and there would be no one there to even extract their body. Um, so that's how it started. Um, and And actually and tragically so. Uh, I was working with them a few years ago. They were initially trained by the civil defense in Turkey because the civil defense in Turkey has a lot of experience with earthquakes, as we know. And an earthquake in a collapsed building from an earthquake is, is very similar, of course, to a collapsed building from an airstrike or anything else. Um, since then, unfortunately, I think because of their status as, as heroes um, Nobel Peace Prize nominees, Netflix series have been done on them. They have unfortunately become the target of one of the most successful disinformation campaigns in history. Um, and it's it's really, I think one of the most tragic things about the Syria crisis is that you don't even get room to breathe or grieve before the disinformation begins. And the disinformation I've seen already today is showing pictures of children who have been buried under rubble in Northwest Syria, but claiming they're in government of Syria-controlled areas, showing pictures of the white helmets rescuing people from under the rubble and claiming that it's Russian and Assad regime search and rescue workers. It's already happening again. And so I have people from Northwest Syria sending me these images, just in awe that this is this nightmare is is just reliving itself over and over and over again, um, and, and you see it even with the U.S. State Department statements. I mean, they spend a lot of their time just batting away this misinformation constantly, this disinformation constantly. So um, it, it's it's quite tragic. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, these guys are these guys are heroes.
1: And Natasha, on that misinformation campaign against them, how successful has it been in smearing the organization in the eyes of the international community? i mean as he's explained there there are many factors as to why aid is slow to arrive to that region but could misinformation be one of them
0: as i said this was the most successful disinformation i think disinformation campaign in modern history so yeah i mean i absolutely think that it's successful the i mean thankfully the white helmets do get a lot of assistance they actually do get a lot of aid so it hasn't worked entirely in terms of aid but i think that um, more broadly, the international community doesn't do great at helping areas that don't have a recognized government in place. Um, and so I think that a lot of the dwindling resources that we've seen, a lot of the shift towards um, working with the Assad government, for example, on assistance and other things, a lot of that is just um, the, the way that our international system works, the way that the UN works. It's um, it's it's very difficult to for a lot of governments who are very risk averse to work in an area where there's a designated terrorist entity, even when there's a regime just across the line that arguably has been terrorizing civilians for many years. So um, that's kind of just the reality of our system, which is why northwest Syria was so very particularly
1: vulnerable. Natasha, what, uh, in your view, needs to happen now?
0: Thank you for asking that question. So we now know that the roads are clear uh, in Turkey. Uh, The border crossings are open. Um, Right now, Turkey and northwest Syria needs all of the help they can get. Um, Politically, on the Turkish side, you know, President Erdogan needs to be showing that he is helping his people in order to be able to part with aid and allow aid to to cross through into Northwest Syria. Um, the aid workers themselves, and even just people that are offloading assistance, they need more personnel. Whether or not those personnel can come from other parts of Turkey uh, or other parts of the world, it all needs to happen now and, and very, very quickly. Because as I mentioned, freezing cold temperatures, um, I mean, we're nearing you know three, three days now, so I don't know how many other... Um, People are have survived under the rubble, but, uh, but there are a lot of people that are homeless right now and, and will need all of the assistance that they can get. Um, and they need it now. So, I mean, there really needs to be international pressure to make this happen, um, because it's logistically possible.
1: For more Irish Times journalism, including our coverage of the disaster in Syria and Turkey subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. That's all for this week. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.